Hello, Frighters. I'm Holland Elise, and this is Fight or Fright. Hello, lovely Frighters. It's your girl, Holland, coming to you through your ear holes, giving you another episode of Fight or Fright. I want to start off again speaking about the flare bracelet. They really are not a sponsor. They're not paying me, but I just think that it's an amazing startup and it makes me feel safer. And now when I'm recording, they officially have the 911 feature, which allows you to reach out to 911 or 911 and your crew. And your crew is like your five friends that you can add to the bracelet. And they'll send like your location to 911 and also get you in touch with an operator if something's wrong. It's super cool. Like I said, they're not paying me. They're not a sponsor. I actually do have the bracelet though, and it does make me feel safer, especially because I'm online dating and it's just weird and not always super fun. But anyway, now getting off of that, I also just wanted to say if you're listening and enjoy the podcast, which I hope you do, please, please, please rate and review. It really helps other people find this podcast and a small podcast like mine can use all the help it can get. And I would love to keep doing this. So if you could, and if you have a minute, if you could leave a five-star review, rating, whatever, anything helps. Thank you so much, guys. So that's all of that stuff. Now, so for this bitchin' spooktober season, like I told you before, I'm doing Ed and Lorraine Warren cases. And I will have a special surprise for you Halloween day. But for today, let's keep a regularly scheduled paranormal Ed and Lorraine spooktober episode. What? What? And this week, I will be giving you the real story behind the movie The Haunting in Connecticut. And this is the tale of the Snedeker family. And I'm just going to say, I'll mention the book at the end, the name of the book, but I was quarantined for a day while I waited for a COVID test. And I literally was trapped in my room, just sitting there doing nothing. So I downloaded a book on Audible about this story. And that's where a lot of this information comes from. I'm not saying I believe it, not saying it's true. I'm just trying to give y'all a spooky, spooky episode for Spooktober. So let's get started. The story begins with Carmen meeting Alan Snedeker. The couple met in 1977 when Carmen was working as a waitress at a bowling alley that Alan, Al, Snedeker went to. The pair were immediately smitten with one another, and eventually they had three boys, Peter, Michael, and Stephen, and they also had a daughter named Stephanie. But the story really begins, or at least the story I'm telling today, begins in 1986. On the top charts was... Shot through the heart, and you're to blame, darling, you'll give love a bad name. (laughs) But more tragically and importantly to this story, the Snedeker family was moving from New York City to Connecticut. It had been a really hard year for the family. Stephen had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he was sick. He was not doing well, and... 
he seemed to be getting worse. So he was undergoing treatments called cobalt treatments in Connecticut. And the trip had become draining and just very hard for the family because they were spending so much in the so much time in the car going to the hospital in Connecticut. So they decided that they wanted to be closer and be able to spend more time with each other. So they moved to a house in Connecticut that was closer to where the hospital was. The day that they moved in, Stephen went to his mom and said that he did not like the house, that the house was evil. Carmen thought this was weird because she knew that the house had been a funeral home and that people were brought there to get ready for their funeral, all of that kind of stuff. She'd even seen a lot of the old equipment that was used in this practice. But Carmen and Al decided they would never tell the kids about what this house used to be. Not only that, but when they were moving into the house, they found metal crosses above every door, and there was one room that was basically covered in dried blood. And ugh, just gross. But Carmen was like, eh, you know, whatevs, we'll just paint it. What the fuck? If I saw dried blood anywhere, I was going to be living. And most likely, if I knew it was a funeral home, and if my hypothetical kid said that the place was evil, I would be like, fuck this house, I'm done. I know it's not always a financially, like, viable option, but, uh, fuck that noise. I'd be out. Eventually, as they settled into this new house, yes, there were creepy feelings, there were creepy vibes, things were going on, but Stephen ended up making a friend in the neighborhood. The friend's name was Jason. Carmen and Al didn't love Jason, but he was a friend and the cobalt treatments were killer and really, really hard on Stephen. So they just wanted Stephen to have someone that was a friend that he could hang out with that would keep his mind off of the treatment. So they kind of just brushed by whatever feelings they had about Jason, even though they felt that he was a bad influence. One day while Stephen and Jason were outside, Carmen heard her daughter, Stephanie, screaming like bloody murder, just terrified. And Carmen ran to her asking, what's wrong? Stephanie ended up telling her mom that she saw a woman outside the window. Carmen was pissed because she thought that Stephen had told Stephanie about what the house used to be and then decided to try and scare her. Stephen vehemently refused that he did this. He was playing with Jason and they were in another part. They were in another part of the yard. There was no way that he could be there. But Carmen didn't believe it, thought he was lying, and thought he was just trying to scare his sister. Stephen would also recount that he heard voices in the house that were telling him to go downstairs. This this voice made him absolutely terrified to go downstairs. His room was down there, but he didn't want to sleep down there. And Carmen and Al didn't believe this shit about the house being haunted or evil. If the kids told them that they saw something or heard something, heard voices, Carmen and Al would get pissed. They would become so mad and just brush it off and tell them that they're making it up. So eventually the kids, well, the kids being Stephen and Stephanie, they felt they couldn't go to their parents and tell them what was going on because it just made them angry. So 
When they moved in, Carmen and Al's son, Mike, had not spent the summer with them in this house in Connecticut. He was with his grand, I think it was grandma in Alabama. But when he got home, Stephanie and Stephen told him what was going on, even though they really didn't need to because all the kids were feeling weird vibes and just felt the house was creepy and off. But again, they were just so mad because they thought that the stories that they were telling each other were just egging them on to hear more things and all of that. And again, like I said, they would get angry if they mentioned anything off that was going on. The kids would huddle together and talk in whispers about what was going on, what they experienced, the voices they heard, the things they saw. They would just sit there talking to each other because they couldn't talk to their parents about it. So whenever Carmen would come into a room, the kids would kind of like separate a little bit and stop talking. And she'd be like, what's going on? And they're like, ah, nothing, nothing. Because they knew if they told her, she would just get angry. And there was definitely becoming a lot of tension in that house. And a lot of this tension fell on Carmen because when they first got there, Al was still working in New York City. He would spend the weekdays in New York City doing his job and then coming back to Connecticut. He was doing this until the transfer to Connecticut went through. And one day while cleaning, Carmen saw the water in the mop bucket turn red and there was an awful coppery smell. She freaked the fuck out. But as we will continue to learn, her and Al are the king and queen of a river called Denial. Like, seriously, I I can't even... F- I know I've never been in this situation, but I can't even fathom the lengths that these two had to go to to convince themselves that nothing was going on in this house. But once Michael got home and came back from Alabama, Stephen started sleeping in the basement because until this point, he was sleeping on the couch upstairs because he was afraid of the basement. But when Michael got home, even though they were both supposed to have their own rooms in the basement, Stephen decided that he was going, if he was going to sleep in the basement, he was going to be sleeping in the same room as Michael. So they basically became roomies and Michael was fine with it. He... I mean, I think Michael was experiencing stuff too, and he didn't really, you know, care. But Al was still working in New York City. And as I said, he stayed there during the week. But for the weekend, he would come home to Connecticut. As time went on being in the house in Connecticut, Al started drinking a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. It's kind of how it always starts. And this started to show in his personality. He became a little more angry and had a shorter fuse for for his temper. And so Stephen and Michael, like I said, were sleeping in the room that they shared in the basement. And one night when they were in the basement, one of Michael's toys was broken. It just made a loud crash at night and they saw the robot toy just broken on the floor. And then they woke up to three men quote-unquote ghosts, staring back at them. They screamed and ran out of the basement up up the stairs as fast as they could. Carmen came running to see what was going on. She was freaked. I mean, her two kids were yelling. They told her what happened. She looked downstairs. She saw nothing. 
She saw the toy, but she saw nothing and then got pissed. She was like, stop this. You guys are scaring your younger siblings. You're making them start to tell stories. Just stop with this fucking nonsense. Leave it alone. There's nothing here. This house isn't evil. Again, denial. But the voices Stephen had been hearing started saying to him, are you ready? I'm waiting. All I've got to say to that is nobody, nope, nope, nope. Peace out. Bye-bye. I would cartoon run out of that shit house so fucking fast. I would give Usain Bolt a run for his money. I'd be like, zoom. I'd zoom out of there. Oh, I can't. Mm. Anyway, during the kids' first week of school, Carmen's alarm didn't go off. They got a late start. The kids just barely made the bus. But Stephen didn't go to school with the other kids because he had a treatment that day. So because they were already late, before she took Stephen to his treatment, she put her purse and keys on the counter in a specific place so that she would be able to find them easily, they wouldn't be late to treatment, and all of that. But they weren't there, and they spent a lot of time looking for it. Carmen was baffled. She had no idea where this stuff could have gone. But the basement freaked Stephen out, and he just kind of shrugged and suggested, have, have you tried looking in the basement? She doesn't think it's down there. She doesn't believe, like I said, the evil or that there's something weird in the house. But she goes downstairs and it's on Stephen's bed. And Carmen was pissed and she was not going to put up with it. She believed that Stephen had been being a teenager and didn't want to go to treatments and was just being obnoxious. And she she was so mad and had to talk with him. Eventually, Al moved back with the family full-time. His job transfer had finally came through, but it also meant a decrease in salary. They were struggling with money because of the treatments and because of all the hospital bills that came with Stephen's illness. But soon, Al started hearing noises at night. He heard music, and it was like old-timey, like very old music. And it was coming from downstairs. But he would check and go downstairs and nothing would be there. But as I said, denial. And as time went on, Stephen's mood got darker. And the only person that he seemed to be mildly okay and happy around was Jason. I mean, if the parents thought of it, maybe it's because Jason actually listened to him and didn't yell when he talked about the weird things that were happening, but I'm not a parent, so... Anyway, there began to be a resentment and even more tension in the house. Stephen resented his parents because if he said anything about weird stuff happening, they would yell. And if anything weird happened, they always blamed him and they would yell. So there was just a lot of yelling and a lot of his parents getting angry, which then just made him kind of stop caring what his parents thought because they were going to yell at him anyway. And Stephen was tired of it. The vibes of this freaky ass hell house was so bad that even people outside of the family who came to visit could feel it. Carmen invited a neighbor named Tanya, who had a baby, over for dinner. Tanya's husband was going to be working late, wasn't going to be home for dinner, and Carmen suggested that Tanya and the baby just come over, have dinner with their family. Tanya got there and was sitting in the kitchen with the baby. Not too long after she got 
weirded out by something that she saw and making excuses and everything. She just left. She noped out of that house and she stayed the fuck away from that hell house. Tanya never went back into that house. And when I say Carmen and Al were masters of denial, I mean, they were having experiences. Throughout the book I read, they would talk about the experiences that they would have, but they wouldn't tell each other. And they were somehow so successful at convincing themselves that nothing was wrong, even after Tanya's freak out and quick departure and like, I'm, I'm out of here. While this was going on, Stephen was spending less and less time with his family. His behavior was both worrying and angering Carmen and Al. He had changed so much since they moved and they were basically just at their wits end. And because they were Catholics, they ended up taking him to a priest to talk. And after some sessions with the priest, the priest said, he's just a teen. I don't see much cause for alarm. He's a teen. He's going to do these kind of things. Just, it's a phase. And after some sessions with the priest, Stephen moved out of the room that he shared with Michael to the room that was supposed to be just his in the basement. They thought this was odd because, I mean, when they first moved in there, Stephen was so scared of the basement. He wouldn't even sleep there. He would sleep on the couch upstairs. And he would basically tell his brother that, you know, things change. Just not scared anymore. I don't know what to tell you, bro. And one evening at dinner, Al was kind of going through the mail, looking at the bills. And obviously, like I said, he took a salary decrease when he went to Connecticut. So he was worried about all the bills. And he opened the electric bill and he flipped his motherfucking lid. He was pissed and yelling about the boys keeping the lights on all night. And by the way, my house freaks me out. And I am glad my parents didn't get pissed because there were nights I was so afraid that I wouldn't turn the light in my room off. And when my brother and sister were in college or they just weren't home and my parents were out of town, you best believe that I kept those lights on, at least in my room, if not in the whole upstairs. But unlike my parents, Al was none too pleased. He was very angry. And I don't know what his thinking was, but he went downstairs, took every light out of the socket so that the lights couldn't be turned on and they couldn't run up the electricity bill. And he hid them. He hid the lights from the boys. He was pissed, like I said. Little did he know that night this would end up backfiring on him because... He has Michael come up to him and wake him up in the middle of the night saying that the light would not go out. Al being woken from slumber, kind of groggy, was like, just turn the light off then. What, like, why are you waking me up for this? And Michael just looks at him and says, you took all of the lights out of the socket. There's no bulbs. You can't turn them off. And this uh, kind of jolted Al upright pretty quickly because yeah it's a little bit concerning if you took all the fucking lights out of the socket and there is a light that won't go off in the room so al followed mike downstairs and saw with his own eyes that the lights were on he saw the weird glow that came from the socket where there was no light but then the lights turned out and he went back into denial 
And he started freaking out at Michael, telling him to go to bed, stop being scared, stop with all this nonsense and all of that. Like I said, Al had started drinking more and more. And I don't know if this is because of the tension in the house, if this was because he was scared of the things that were going on and there was so much stress with money and everything. All I know is that this book was saying that he started drinking more. So going back to Stephen, the voice started telling Stephen that Al was not his father. I couldn't quite get a grasp on this, but it seemed from the book that Al really wasn't Stephen's biological father. I could be wrong about that. It seems like they met when they were young, so I don't know why Stephen wouldn't be, Al wouldn't be Stephen's father, but Stephen does say something about how he's not my father, and Carmen says something along the lines of, he's raised you since you were young, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know if Stephen was adopted by Al or what's going on with that. I actually, other than this book, I couldn't find too much information on this story other than talking about a hoax and the movie The Haunting of Connecticut, all of that shit. So anyway, the voice started telling Stephen that Al was not his father and that Al was getting in the way of who Stephen was supposed to be. And the tensions in the house just kept mounting, especially with Stephen and his parents. He stayed in his room, only came up to eat, only talked when he was talked to and had something to say. Then he would go back downstairs, put on the headphones, and listen to Ozzy Osbourne screamo type goth music that his parents were not too pleased about. Carmen one day ended up wondering, I mean, not really because like I said, she's in denial, but she thought, what if the kids are right about the house? She couldn't deny anymore that something was going on, but she just didn't think that the house was evil. And she thought about her friend Tanya and she missed Tanya. She loved Tanya's baby. She thought the baby was cute. She liked Tanya and Tanya lived in the neighborhood. It was so weird that they hadn't talked since the night that Tanya came to their place. So she went over to talk to Tanya and they ended up talking about some of the experiences they had in the house. And this is the first time that Carmen was really able to get off her chest to Tanya and to anyone, the kind of stuff that happened to her and what she was experiencing in the house. And Tanya picked up a magazine that she had had and she told Carmen about Ed and Lorraine Warren. She showed her the magazine with an article that featured the Warrens and said, you should think about giving them a call. But Carmen knew how well this was gonna go with her husband, Al. While things were still tense at the house, Carmen's sister was going through a really difficult separation. Really, really bad. And she begged for Carmen to take in her children just for a little bit while things kind of got worked out and settled. And Carmen was reluctant, even though Al was like, yeah, let's do it. There was so much going on at their own house. Carmen was worried what Lara and Mary, her nieces, would think. But eventually she relented and told her sister, of course, I'd love to have your daughters. My nieces can come and stay with us. So 12-year-old Mary and 17-year-old Lara came to live at the Snedeker house in Connecticut. They were beautiful girls. And the day Lara came, she was so boisterous and loud and funny and full of light. She was full of light, life, and energy. 
but it didn't take long for the house to diminish that light that shone in Lara. And trigger warning for, honestly, the next basically part of this podcast. There is some incubus, succubus, sexual assault shit kind of going on. So I just want to warn you right now, ahead of time, there is some sexual assault ahead. And if you're triggered by that, I feel like you probably got enough of the spooky, weird stuff that happened, but I'd love for you to keep listening if this doesn't trigger you. So what happens next? Disgustingly, tragically, awfully, grossly, like, oh, so gross. The voices started to tell Stephen about his cousins, how beautiful they were, all that kind of shit. And they would have Stephen go up there and watch the girls, his cousins, sleep at night. It was really fixated on Lara, but Stephen was younger than Lara and smaller. And so the voice told him that it would be easier to go after Mary. And this is what he did. One day, Carmen came home to see Mary crying on the front steps of the house with Lara holding her. Carmen was so worried and ran over to them and asked what happened. They seemed reluctant to talk at first, but they finally told her that Stephen had molested 12-year-old Mary. And Carmen, because of everything that had been happening, believed them right away and had Stephen arrested. She called the police on her son, which, I mean, he did a horrible thing, so. But she was hoping that this would scare him and get him out of this phase and maybe even get him away from what she's starting to think is the bad influence of Jason. When he was locked up, Stephen ended up seeing a psychiatrist and being evaluated. The psychiatrist held him and talked to him and came back and said that Stephen was schizophrenic and didn't need to be in jail. He needed to be in a mental hospital and needed to get his head straight. The family went to visit him at the hospital, and Stephen barely talked to them. He was pissed at them. He'd resented them before. Now, instead of believing what he was saying, they were putting him in... They called the police, and now he's in a mental hospital. He was not too pleased with his parents right now. Not that I'm saying that they didn't have a right to put him in jail. He did a horrible thing, but this resentment for them had been growing, so he barely talked when they came to visit him. But as they were leaving, he got in what I'd like to think of as the last word. He looked at them as they were walking out and said to them, now that the presence doesn't have me to talk to and to go after, it's going to be coming after all of you. (laughs) And fuck if he was not right about that. I mean, that statement was spot the fuck on. One night, Laura was trying to go to sleep. And like I said, this House had kind of diminished her spirit. She had so much light and love and life, and she just, it kind of diminished. They, Laura and Mary, well, Mary after the situation left, but Laura decided to stay. Laura wanted to see if there was anything she could do to help them. She knew something was going on in the house, and she wanted to stay there with them. But one night, Laura started feeling fingers on the inside of her thigh when nothing was there. And Michael began to hear the voices that Stephen was hearing. And soon, almost everyone in the house started hearing the voices or feeling things. 
then one day, Lara was in the bathroom, like she took a shower, she was changing, getting ready, and an invisible hand and presence sexually assaulted her. Al and Carmen were trying to get in so that they could help Lara, who was obviously screaming and freaking out and not understanding what was happening. When the door finally opened, Al freaked out because he felt as though he had been stabbed and thought he'd been stabbed. Carmen told him there was nothing there, that he was fine, but they they couldn't ignore any longer that something was happening. They couldn't take it. So they ended up calling the priest that Stephen spoke with to tell him what was going on. He didn't really believe them, but in, in a way to kind of just humor them, he talked to them the next day. He came, saw what was going on, went into the house, and he was like, whatever, there's nothing going on here. You guys are crazy. But he could see that they were actually legitimately scared. So he blessed the house and that was all he did. Lara and Carmen, being the Catholics that they were, were optimistic and hoped that this blessing from the priest would help. But nah, things got worse. The presence and what was in the house did not like this blessing at all. And next, it was Carmen, who was sexually assaulted twice in the same morning. The first one, she started feeling fingers on her thigh and touching her in the kitchen. She ran to her room and started freaking out, but she didn't want to worry Lara. But Lara had heard her run into her room and was outside the door freaking out, wanting to help. But obviously, she couldn't. The door was opened. Lara came in, comforted her aunt, and... Carmen decided she needed to take a shower because she just felt gross and icky, embarrassed, disgusting. She didn't know what her husband Al would think. And then while she was in the shower, she was attacked again. It it freaked her out. She just couldn't be in that house. She took Lara and Peter. Peter was the youngest son and he wasn't in school yet. So she took Lara and Peter and they pieced out of that house, went right to the mall. Laura and Carmen tried to stay as normal as they could for Peter. They didn't want to scare him. They just wanted to make him think they were having a fun afternoon out. But after distracting themselves, distracting Peter, being away from the house, they realized they had to get home because Stephanie and the kids would be getting home from school soon. So they had to leave. Not too long after this, one evening, there were loud bangs from the upstairs what was seemingly the upstairs apartment. Well, that's what they tried to convince themselves, at least, that it was from upstairs. But it sounded more like it was in their apartment. And even if it was upstairs, the upstairs neighbors were on vacation. They weren't home. So the loud bangs wouldn't have even made sense then. But when they heard the bangs, it wasn't too long after that Tanya called Carmen saying that... There was a woman in the upstairs window where there, the people that lived above them who weren't home, there was a woman walking by the window back and forth, kind of pacing. And this woman was not translucent, but had like a green tint and was just walking around. But the upstairs neighbors were gone and things only kept getting worse. But the final, final straw for them was one night when Lara was sleeping she was sexually assaulted again. Carmen felt so helpless and hated that this was happening to her niece, to her family. She really just started to be like, Stephen was right. We should have, like, 
We shouldn't have undermined what he said. He was right. And she felt so helpless. She was saying Hail Marys and she was saying the Lord's Prayer. She was holding a rosary. She was doing everything she could to get what was happening to Lara, the assault, to stop. It had calmed down a tiny bit. And at this point, Carmen knew that the priest they had been in touch with wasn't going to do anything. He didn't believe them. And there was no point in calling them. So she remembered the magazine that Tanya had given her. And in the middle of the night, Carmen called Ed and Lorraine Warren. She was freaking out, speaking fast and stumbling on her words because she felt so frantic, so helpless and so scared. She could barely get it to come out of her mouth. And Lorraine, who answered the phone, could barely understand her. Lorraine told Carmen to keep saying Hail Marys, keep saying Hail Marys, keep saying the Lord's Prayer, and to call them at 9 a.m. the next morning. Obviously, because of everything that's been going on, the family didn't get any sleep. At 8 o'clock, they watched the clock incessantly until it became 9 a.m. They called the Warrens right away. Carmen was able to gather herself to more clearly and audibly explain what was going on to the Warrens. And they rushed over. They lived an hour away in Connecticut in a different part, and they came as quickly as they could. This initial visit was just to do basically a, an interview, talk to them, have Lorraine, who was in touch with the other side, walk around, get a feeling for the house, see if she could feel anything that would be causing this presence. They wanted to make sure that there wasn't any completely logical explanation for the things that the Snedekers were talking about. So they came. During the interview, Lorraine asked if she could take a walk around the house. And Carmen was a little embarrassed at the state of the house she was living in and said as much to Lorraine. Lorraine's like, I'm not looking at that. I'm just trying to get a feel for the house. Just see what's going on. Carmen agreed to let her walk around the house and they stayed upstairs with Ed and answering more questions, just talking in the kitchen while Lorraine did her thing. Lorraine ended up in the basement. She got a weird feeling in Michael's room, but she kept walking and went into Stephen's room. And that was where she kind of freaked out. She got a really bad feeling, a really bad vibe, and she didn't run because she didn't want to freak out this already scared family any more than they were. But she went upstairs as quickly as she could and privately talked to her husband, Ed. They went into the master bedroom, closed the door and talked. Lorraine told him about this place being a funeral home and that there was necrophilia going on and that there was definitely something wrong with this place and that it was evil, that there were demons and negative spirits. Another time when they came, Lorraine actually like heard this spirit that was doing the necrophilia. She like felt this energy and could hear it like taunting her and telling her to watch and like all of this weird stuff. It was freaky as fuck. Oh my God. I just like, I nope so quick. Like with the Conjuring movie, when they go to the hotel or the motel, hotel, motel, 
till holiday in. They they do that, and I mean, it follows them, so mm, I don't know. It was kind of attached to them at that point, but I I just think that I would want to get out of the house so quickly, especially if they were saying that there was some weird shit like necrophilia and demons and all that shit going on. But the Warrens were concerned enough about what was going in the house that they brought a bunch of people to set up cameras, EVP, like just a bunch of equipment around the house for every room. Ed and Lorraine Warren would stay later than the people that were setting up and get the three researchers that they had acquainted with the family, get to know them, help them get to know them. But then they left. They would come and go, Ed and Lorraine. They would come during the day, then they would leave at night. I mean, they had a daughter too. They had to go home at night. So, But the researchers, which two of them were related to the Warrens, but the researchers stayed overnight for weeks with these with this family. And the dark presence and the happenings and just everything that happened, they did not like the researchers being there. They didn't like the Warrens being there. They didn't like anything getting in its way. And so the dark presence in the house would take over Carmen. It would, in a way, kind of like contort her body, just like it put her mind and gave her visions of being in a dark place. And in this dark place, there would be things telling her, like mocking her God. After the second time that this happened, Al started yelling at the presence that he was stronger. Leave Carmen alone. She can't handle it anymore, but he's stronger than her. Take him on. And the spirit did, but in a different way. It did not like being yelled at. It did not like how... Al was coming at it, and so to humiliate him, the presence sexually assaulted Al, too. Now, with everything that was happening, especially the assault on Al, the Warrens were granted an exorcism. Obviously, they couldn't do it themselves, but they were there, and they set it up. They, The exorcism took a long time, and the people that stayed... I will say Stephanie and Peter were taken out of the house. They were put with, I believe it was the family that Mary stayed with when she left the house. Peter and Stephanie ended up staying with that family too, I believe. But they weren't in the house. The Warrens told them to get them out of the house. They really just wanted the people who were experiencing the most stuff to stay. And yes, Peter didn't experience much. It seemed like this presence was just going after people who were like the older people in the house, like Stephen, who was a teen, Mary, who was a teen, Laura, who was a teen, and then the parents. That's who the bad stuff was happening to. So they got the kids out, but everyone else stayed. And while the exorcism was going on, it's actually interesting because the priest that came for the exorcism was dressed in like normal clothes and they're like well I've never seen a priest look like this like they usually wear this that the other thing like they have the little collar like all that shit and he was in like just some outfit but there had been a couple of priests that came so that they could give permission for the exorcism so Father Nash who was the one who performed the exorcism came in clothes and they asked why didn't you come in like 
the outfit and he's like, you guys have had enough priests come and fathers come and enough people in and out of your house that you didn't need another person drawing attention to your house and to you. And Carmen was hadn't even thought of it, but, but thanked him. One, obviously for being there, but also for that kindness. So while Father Nash was doing the exorcism, it took forever. And the people that were in the room experienced being poked, mocked, and a whole roller coaster of things. The spirits covered the priest in darkness. All they could see was blackness around the priest while he was talking. At one point, I believe it was Lara that couldn't see anything. And then she could see. Ed had heart trouble and he ended up having to leave the room during the exorcism. He left the room because you could not give in to the fear and to the things that were happening to you during the exorcism. The being poked, being mocked, the exorcism would either need to start all over or would not be effective if you gave in to the distractions and to the fear that these presences were trying to create. So Ed had to leave the room because he was having heart trouble. And he'd had a heart attack in the past, so they thought that they may need to call an ambulance for him. That's how crazy this exorcism was. But hours later, the exorcism was finally over. The air became lighter, and it was as if they were seeing light in the house and seeing the sun in this house for the first time. And the priest did a little prayer over Ed and himself because he was very worn out after this and they were fine. Everyone was okay. You could feel the difference in the atmosphere of that house and their nightmare was over. So a few months after the exorcism, they ended up moving out of this hell house in Connecticut. I believe they still lived in Connecticut, but they no longer lived in that house. After the exorcism, they obviously believed Stephen at this point and asked him to come home. Before they moved out of the house, Stephen said he was in no way ever going to go back to that house. He had no interest in going back to that house. And in all honesty, he was still pretty pissed off at his parents and his family. And even after they moved, he didn't know if he would ever want to move in with them again. So the family, they had some work to do on rebuilding the trust and relationships, especially with Stephen. I mean, they put him in a mental hospital and he was on meds for schizophrenia when they finally figured out that he was telling them the truth. So I wasn't able to find out if Stephen ever did live with them again, if those relationships were repaired, or if he even talks to his parents at now. I have no idea. It was... Other than this book, like I said, it was so fucking hard to find information on this case. And like I said, because I was quarantined waiting for my COVID results, I listened to this nine-hour book to give to you guys. Um, but once the Snedekers moved, they heard rumors about the families that lived in the house after them having some experiences. So I think this might be one of the longest ones I've done yet. And... It was super weird and fun and creepy and interesting and incubus, succubus, weird, shitty, paranormal stuff going on. But the book that I got this from was called In a Dark Place. This 
book was written by Ray Garten. He's a journalist writer who interviewed and talked to Carmen and Al and Ed and Lorraine Warren to put this book together. Years after writing this, Ray came out and said that it was all fake. He said that he didn't think some of the stories lined up. He felt it was weird and swears that it is not true. That Ed and Lorraine told, or that Ed Warren told him to take some creative license with the story. But there is a family member that's related to the Snedekers that didn't live in the house, that wasn't someone that lived in the house, but was a fi- related to them somehow. And he swears everything about this was true. He said that he'd been in the house and experienced it himself. I'm not saying whether I think it's true or not. I am a believer in different presences, paranormal stuff, ghostly things. Like, I'm, I do believe in that. But I just, I don't know if I can say I completely believe this story or don't. I just think it's a freaky and fun tale for the spook spook season. And... I think it's it's a scary story and in a way I wouldn't I don't know if I'd even be too mad at them if it wasn't that if it wasn't true. I mean, they got a movie out of it, they got a book. They had medical bills from their son who was legitimately sick with cancer and going through treatments. Like, is it the best thing for them to do if they made it up? No. But if they got money to pay back some of the hospital costs by telling a spooky story that people can enjoy and still talk about to this day? I don't know. I don't know. That's for someone else to decide. I'm just saying, who knows? It might be true. It might not be true. Some of it could be true, which is kind of what I'm thinking. I think that there's probably some weird vibes in that house, especially with like what the house used to be. I feel like I feel like there could be weird vibes. I don't know if everything they said happened is true, but I can. I think I can come down on the, there was something there and some of it might've been exaggerated, but I'm not 100% sure. So who the fuck knows? So now you guys, it is time for The Fright Is Over. <sighs> yeah. So another win for genealogy crime solving, depending on how you feel about it. I'm just going to say up front, I need to know more about the genealogy and all of that stuff, but I can understand people's issue with the privacy part of genealogy testing. But I mean, (laughs) D'Angelo, that piece of shit, and all the other people that are being caught, they're usually bad people and it's usually solving cold cases. But I can understand both sides. I don't think it's completely black or white, good or bad, right or wrong. I think there's a gray area. And that right now, it's just helping solve some cold cases, which is what I'm bringing to you today. So, and the fright is over. This week, there is a story from Canada that I found when I was looking at new solved cases. In Canada, a beautiful young life was taken horrifically. Christine Jessup was a young, beautiful little girl when in October of 1984, she was abducted, raped, and murdered. It was horrible. It was just so tragic. She was so young. And it's, when anyone is murdered, it's sad. But when someone so young who has so much life ahead of them, it's just... It's awful. Her body wasn't found till New Year's Eve. So that's 
basically two months after she was abducted. This case ended up leading to one of the most notable Canadian wrongful conviction cases. Guy Paul Morin was convicted of the crime, but 18 months later, after being convicted, he was exonerated through DNA evidence. This was like 1995, I think it was, that he was exonerated. And like I said, it's one of the most notable wrongful conviction cases. 35 years after the crime took place, the police came out and said that they believe they have finally found the killer of Christine Jessup. Using genealogy, they tested the semen that was found in Christine's underwear, and it was a match to Calvin Hoover, someone that lived in the neighborhood. Unfortunately, justice-wise, Calvin Hoover died in 2015. So through genealogy, there's a match, but technically, there still really isn't quote-unquote justice for the family. But from what I saw, the family is at least thankful to have a semblance of relief knowing that the DNA matched Calvin Hoover and that, for the most part, it's over, even though they'll never see the person that did this to her in jail, which is sad. But that was The Fright is Over for this week. I suggest you look up more. I know I'm going to because I don't know much about that case, but I just wanted you to give wanted to give you that information. So thank you so, so, so much for listening to another episode of Fight or Fright. If you enjoyed, please tell your kids, tell your wife. Just kidding. But really, please do tell friends and rate and review. It really, really, really does help. I do this alone. I am like a other than Perry, who does my audio. I'm a one person show and I would really love if you could rate and review, help me get known, help my ratings. I would love it. I love you, Friders. You're amazing. You're awesome. Join me next week for another episode of Fight or Fright. You can find me on social media at Fight or Fright Pod on Instagram. On Facebook, you can find me at Fight or Fright Podcast. On Twitter, you can find me at Fight Fright Pod. And... On Gmail, you can find me at fightorfrightpod at gmail.com. Again, I have a special surprise for you guys on Halloween. But until then, keep it spooky, y'all. Adios. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Fight or Fright. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at fightorfrightpod and on Gmail at fightorfrightpod at gmail.com. Twitter is the only one that's a little bit different in there, and that's at Fight Fright Pod. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it, and it would really help me if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Even just spreading the word to family, friends, people you know that enjoy true crime, mysteries, paranormal, all of that kind of stuff. And this is Holland, and I'll see you next week when I tell you another crazy story. And remember, you don't have to fight this fright.